tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we are listening to the second part of our educational session from the folks at Neighborhood Cats with Brian Cordes and Susie Richmond. It is focusing on return to field and targeting the community cat program. This is our second part of a two-part series. If you missed the first part, I would highly recommend you go back to communitycatspodcast.com to the website or go back into your podcast feed, whichever place you happen to subscribe to the show. Go back and listen to part one and then hop right in and join us for this second learning session with the folks at Neighborhood Cats. If you are interested in learning more about how to do trap neuter return and how to do it strategically, feel free to join us to get certified in TNR at one of our TNR workshops that we have the first Saturday of every month, except for in January and July. You can sign up for those programs also via the Community Cats podcast website. Um, and I hope you'll uh, turn your passion for cats into action. Join us and make lives better for cats in your community. Thank you again. See you next week. So what are some of the common fears uh, besides that everybody's going to freak out? Uh, number one fear is that people will harm the cats. You know, they brought them in because they don't want them there. You put them back exactly where they came from. You're inviting abuse. A common fear, but not one that, and, and, and a risk for sure. And this is part of why you need to have good processes in place. If you have a return to field program, you need to thoroughly interview the people who bring the cats in. You need to get as much background as possible so that, you know, they're, look, most people are not violent. Uh, they are not going to harm an animal, even if they're angry about your policy. Now, every once in a while, there is somebody with a couple of screws loose, and you need to have processes in place that will allow you to pick that person out. But you need to base that on objective data, like there have been abuse in the area before, or this guy's been a problem before, or whatever it might be. Um, there's been some mysterious deaths in the area, something objective. But a general fear that people will be unhappy enough to the point where they're going to harm the animals is not something that has been re reported. And this is now we're 13 years in. We're not seeing widespread abuse as a result of this program. And that's because, you know, most people are decent and, uh, again, are not going to go to the point of actually physically harming another creature. So another fear is, you know, the people who are used to dropping off cats at the shelter, problem solved, at least for a few months, they're going to complain, you know, especially if you're receiving any type of government funding or the shelter has a government contract. And um, the answer to that is yes, they will. Um, they absolutely will complain. And that's why before you launch a return field program, it's very important to educate the government officials and the policymakers in your area about what you're doing and why you're doing it. It doesn't mean if you don't have to that you need to ask their permission, but you need to inoculate them. You need to let them know the policy behind them. You need to know what you're trying to accomplish, what your benchmarks are, and you need to let them know be prepared. Some people are going to call you up and complain about what we're doing. So at least you've inoculated and it's not a surprise because that's when you get into trouble. When people start calling 
their council members and complaining and they don't know anything about it all of a sudden and because they're getting all the information from the person who's complaining they're not they don't know anything about why what you're doing and they may just take their constituent side without really knowing that they're doing that and without any countervailing information so be smart about it and lay the groundwork and you won't run into serious problems with the government officials. And if there is really a serious problem, then you'll know about it before you launch the program instead of after. Um, there's also a fear that since the cats, the return to field cats tend to cycle through quickly, that cat owners won't have an opportunity to find their cats to go to the shelter and to reclaim them. Well, the reality is sadly that the number of cats who are reclaimed uh, is only 2%. So many studies have shown that if you take a pet cat and you put that cat back in their own territory, they have a far greater chance of returning home than if they sit at the shelter waiting for their owner to come to them. So let's touch on that controversial subject, which is friendly cats. And as I say, the problems return to field programs have run into um, have not been the general public saying, oh, you know, how could you put these cats back out here? It's come from rescuers who think that the shelters are using return to field programs as a way of bolstering their live release rate numbers and are taking adoptable cats and dumping them on the street. That's the stereotype. Now, some of, some of this criticism has been caused by the animal welfare field, by the return to the field programs themselves, because they have not messaged well. When the criticism comes, there's a tendency to be opaque and not to explain what you're doing or why. There's also been uh, the field has become too ideologically, uh, too, too rigid in their thinking about friendly cats and return to field. And it's, be, it's become this kind of black or white issue. And that's what at the bottom there, when I say avoid an autopilot approach. So some shelters have policies where every cat who's above a certain age, like say over the age of four months, whatever their temperament is, whatever their circumstances are, unless it's you know a very, very dangerous situation, they're going to fix the cat and put the cat back and they don't care whether the cat's friendly or not. And then you have shelters who are just the opposite extreme. Any cat that's friendly uh, and potentially adoptable is never going to return and when you have that kind of a black or white approach, that's when you get into trouble because you miss all the nuances. You every situation, you know, having been involved in two return to field programs myself, one in which I drove Susie and I drove the cats back. Uh, we were the drivers, and another program where we're the deciders. We make the decisions about which cats go back. Every cat is a different situation. Every circumstances are you so. What we advise in order to avoid this controversy is to take, uh, first of all, to be transparent, let the community know what your decision-making protocol is, and don't go on autopilot. Consider each cat and the factors that you have to take into account include these. Like, So what's the capacity for care, right? If you're in uh, the middle of kitten season and you're 120% capacity and your foster homes are all filled and you've got a friendly cat who looks like he could, you know, might belong to someone or has done quite well in his community outdoors, that may be your best option uh, for that cat. On the other hand, if you don't know the cat situation or you think it might be risky and you've got plenty of open cages and a high, a good adoption rate, then it may be better to keep the cat in. What's the cat's history? So when you do return to field, as I've said before, there should be a vigorous interviewing process of the person who brings the cat in. 
and you should find out, you know, how long has the cat been seen in the area? What were the circumstances? And, and that kind of information, if you're knowledgeable about outdoor cats, can really uh, tell you what's going on. So, for example, we had a cat who had never been seen before, appeared on somebody's porch, wouldn't leave the porch for two weeks but just stayed there and would cry. And then the person started to feed them and they just would never leave the porch and was very friendly. That's not a cat who belonged. Who's, that's a, probably a cat who was abandoned or was lost. And then they just took refuge and were frightened and just stayed there. On the other hand, we've had cats where they've been known to be in the area for years and people actually complained when somebody brought the cat in and started calling the shelter, like, what did you do with our cat? So that's a friendly cat too, but that cat's doing great and the can thriving and it's wanted there and that's a good time to return them. So that's why you need that history. Keep in mind too that, you know, with trap near to return programs in general, there's a goal of reducing the free roaming population. So, you know, we this is our own bias at neighborhood cats, but if all things are equal, we're gonna place the cat in a home because that's one less cat on the street. Um, if we don't have information that leads us to the cat would do well. So we recommend an individual assessment of what is the best available outcome, considering everything that is involved in your shelter, in your community, and with that particular cat. And don't do a black or white. That's when you start automatically putting friendly cats back, you're going to end up with some really upset rescuers, and sometimes rightfully so. I mean, I've seen some of the cases that have led to lawsuits and over-friendly cats being put back. Well, I shouldn't say lawsuits. I want to over-dramatize it. There's one that's going on right now that I'm aware of. And when you look at the facts of that case, it was pretty questionable putting that cat back. And I think they did it because they just went on autopilot. The cat came from outside, the cat goes back outside. So don't do that. It will stay out of trouble. So if you're interested in return to field and the mechanics of it, like the interview process, like how to house them, what are all the factors that go into assessing the eligibility of a cat, including age and temperament and health and things like that. HSUS, Alley Cat Advocates and Neighborhood Cats, we all got together and decided that, you know, we kept seeing return to field programs starting and people having no resources to, oh, everybody had to start from scratch or word of mouth. So we put together a handbook that is uh, very much a um, meant as a reference material that goes over all the different uh, mechanical aspects of return to field, including messaging to the community. Uh, again, lists, checklists for before you return the cat, you know, a lot of real practical hands-on information. You can either download a free PDF copy of um, this handbook, or you can buy a print copy. Brian, do you have a couple minutes for some quick, some questions out there? Oh yeah, absolutely. There were definitely a lot of questions out there, uh, more about predation, the bird situation and that, and that kind of stuff. And you may be covering that in the second part. So if I am touching upon things for the, for the second half, just say, we're gonna talk about that. But okay. I, I, was, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your transition from going from New York, which has more seasonal, it's got the cold winter. We were just talking before we hit the recording about the fact that there's fewer kittens to deal with. And then going to Maui and, and your experience with um, you and Susie going to Maui, what you thought you were going to run into with regards to Trap Neuter Return and, you know, how were you received there? Well, we expected, you know, especially the island of Maui was always known as uh, Miaui in the uh, <laughs> cat animal welfare world because of the, you know, extreme overpopulation of free roaming cats. 
And there's uh, what you what you hear if you listen to national media is a lot of propaganda uh, from the conservation about how the cats are wiping out all the endangered species. And um, they actually run they used to run TV ads like the cats on local um, television stations and radio spots. So we expected to walk into a very hostile environment when it came to trap, neuter, return. And uh, we thought it would take probably at least a year or two before we really ever got going with the hands-on work. And what we found was the exact opposite. We found people so eager for help um, that, you know, when we would offer to, because the Maui Humane Society opened a, um, a free community cat spay-neuter program, and we would do a lot of the trapping. And when we offered to people like, hey, we'll it's not going to cost you anything. You just got to work with us. We'll get your cats trapped and fixed and bring them back. They were falling over themselves to to get that service. And in fact, um, we, we like right now, we don't, we're not doing all that much trapping because the clinics are all full without us. Um, they're doing thousands and thousands of uh, community cats a year. So we discovered that it was really, you know, people on the ground, people who care about the cats, the people who feed them are the same everywhere. You know, they really care about their animals. The vast majority of them understand that spay-neuter is a good thing. They don't want more cats to feed. They don't want a lot of cats, uh, you know, predating on wildlife, but they don't want to kill the cats uh, either. So um, really, you know, trap-neuter return throughout Hawaii has grown explosively, not just because of us. But when we first got here, except for Maui, which had just changed, all, all the shelters on the islands had extremely high euthanasia, like 80% or higher cat euthanasia rates. And that's completely turned around now. And there are TNR programs available on all the islands. So, you know, we, we've seen a tremendous amount of progress. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm going to let you continue on and then we'll have plenty, a little more time at the end for Q&A. We'll, we'll sure. cover all that. Okay, great. Thanks, Stacey. Hey, everybody. Um, let's get back into the subject at hand. So we've talked about return to field, um, but I also want to talk about targeting and how it can be combined with return to field to make a full, the fullest possible cat program. Because return to field on its own from a population reduction view, and that is, remember, you know, I, I see return to field as a part of a TNR program. Now, that's something that's a separate thing all by itself. It came out of TNR. It's complementary to it. And as I said before, one of the main goals of trap, neuter, return programs on a community level is to have fewer unknown free-roaming cats on the streets. So when you only do return to field, that can be a problem. So here's our return to field kitty. Remember, we returned him to Main Street. Well, this is the backyard that he comes from. And the red circle in these graphics uh, signifies that he's a fixed return to field cat. So you put him back on Main Street. Now, if he's or she is the only cat in that area, uh, then you're fine, right? This, this kitty is not going to contribute to any more reproduction. And you've done that. But if this cat part of a colony of cats, 10 cats. And um, as we said before, you know, when citizens do trapping, they tend to do it anecdotally. They don't know how many there are. They only have one trap. They put it out. Whoever goes in first gets caught. You end up with very low sterilization rates for that area. And now we have this one cat out of 10 who's fixed. That's not going to lead to population reduction. Those nine cats that are unaltered, and it could be seven cats or even six cats if the person continues to trap and gets a few more, their reproduction is going to 
outpace the loss of reproductive capacity. They're going to have more litters of kittens. They're going to be able to reproduce enough to maintain the carrying capacity of that environment. So if that environment can only handle 10 cats, fixing this one cat is not going to change that. Fixing two or three of these cats is not going to change that. You will continue to have 10 cats in this neighborhood. And the return to field spay neuter in this situation will have contributed nothing to population control. Now, on the other hand, if we said, hey, where there's one, there's many, and we took this return to field cat to be a what we would call a red flag or a scout or a, a sign that there are cats in this community. And then we not only return this cat, we sent a trapping team out to that neighborhood and they talked to the feeders and they discovered where all the other cats are and they all got fixed. And that would be the blue, the blue circles would be the TNR cats. Now we have population control. Now we've integrated on the colony level, which is just talking about this particular group of cats, we've integrated return to field with TNR in a way that does to population reduction. Now, if we look at this, and here we are in Farrellville, for those of you who haven't been here for a while, it's a uh, city somewhere in the Midwest and looks like the state of Iowa. This is what return to field, if you're only doing return to field, this is what it looks like, right? You've got random individual cats throughout the community that have been brought in and then returned back to where they came from. Great for those cats, great for the shelter, has all those benefits, but does nothing to actually reduce the overall population of cats because the sterilization rates within any colony or any area are too low, unless that's the only cat that's, that's there. Now, when we combine return to field with colony level targeting, so we use the cats as a red flag, and wherever we return a cat, we also trap in that neighborhood, then that's what this looks like. You have the red circles are the return to field cats and blue circles are the TNR cats. And within each colony that we deal with, we're getting high sterilization rates, not necessarily 100%, but we're getting high enough that there's a good chance that over time, these numbers will go down. So this is a one way to combine return to field with TNR, with targeted TNR, by basically what you're doing is you're, we call it the red flag approach, where the RTF cats are a red flag, that there are other cats in the area. When you're talking about, if, if you're measuring the impact of your return to field and overall, what I would call community cat program, where return to field is a component, and you're measuring its effectiveness by your cat intake, this approach is going to be, um, could be very powerful at lowering intake because you're basically micro-targeting the sp specific locations where your impounded cats are coming from because these tend to be people who don't want the cats around and are active when uh, they see cats and they try to trap them, now, you know, usually not very efficiently, but enough to fill your shelters. And then if you go to those exact locations, that street, that backyard, and you get all the cats fixed, and you get the reduction in nuisance behavior, and you get there's no more kitten, and you get attrition over time, you will have eliminated a lot of the sources of your intake, the specific sources. So it can be very powerful when it comes to reducing intake. Um, however, and, and it can help with population reduction, but there is a problem with this approach when just talking about population reduction, not talking about intake lowering, talking about the number of cats that are in the community. And I wonder if, um, I'll give you just a moment, does anybody know, anybody spot 
why this is not the most efficient way to reduce the population of cats as opposed to lowering intake. I'll give you just a moment to think about that because this is definitely a viable approach. This is definitely a viable policy for a community cat program, but there's another one that might emphasize population reduction over intake reduction. Okay, so let me let me explain it. In order to understand this, let's go back to our grocery store. And um, the cats were not removed, those initial cats, let's say they were not removed, but instead somebody at the grocery store, you know, who worked there, put out a trap, they caught one cat, brought them to the shelter, and now the shelter's got a return to field program, and that cat come back, okay? But now we've combined our return to field program. We don't just put the one cat back. We say, ah, well, if this cat came from a grocery store with a dumpster in the back, there must be other cats there. So we'll send our trappers or our nonprofit partners or our good volunteers, whoever it might be, to go to the grocery store, get the rest of the cats TNR'd. And they do that, right? And now we've got a colony that's 100% fixed. So time goes by. Um, there's 10 cats, enough food for 10. It's a stable situation. But then over time, um, the population declines, which is what we want it to do. Now that you can see they're all ear tipped. And uh, maybe a couple of years go by, hopefully a lot longer, and we're down to five cats. What's the problem? More cats will come in. There's still food for 10. Exactly. You guys are really good. You're still surrounded. You know, you still got colonies all over the place and community cats all over the place. And it's great that you've targeted the grocery store. But if you haven't targeted the entire area, well, you've got these colonies of cats that are uh, reaching their carrying capacity that need more food sources if more of them are going to survive. And you've got um, five cats at the grocery store with enough food for 10. Well, you know, guess what happens? Eventually, some of those cats from adjoining neighborhoods are going to come in. And you know that old maxim, you've, everybody's probably heard it, that, you know, one of the advantages of TNR is that old cats keep the new cats away, right? They guard the territory. Well, that's not true if there's more than enough food for newcomers. Then they don't have that motivation. If there's 10 cats and enough food for 10, they will fight like hell to keep number 11 away. But if there's five of them and there's enough cats for 10, they don't much care whether six, seven, and eight come and share. Okay. So you end up reversing some of the gains from a population point of view uh, that you got. So that was that, remember that 10 went down to five. But now that you've created a, uh, inadvertently created a vacuum, that five maybe go back up to six, seven, and some of the population reduction is lost. So how do we um, how do we uh, avoid that? Well, this is where community level targeting comes in, and and we don't just stop at the grocery store. We um, we, we identify this neighborhood as a high intake area, as a high need area, and we try to fix. We try to focus our TNR resources on the area and not just on the colony. And so we begin to, to distinguish. We don't try to, we can't do the area for every single return to field colony, right? Every time we send a return to field cat, we can't do the entire zip code where they returned. So we have to start to try to identify um, what, uh, where they came from, right? And um, what areas are of particular need and where we should uh, focus our resources. And we spend our TNR time in that region. So it looks like this on a community level. When you do return to field combined with community level targeting, 
um, and not only colony level targeting. So you'll see in zip code one, two, and four, we're sending the cats back, we're RTFing them, but we're not following up. Um, and the reason is because we've identified zip code number three as a high need zip code. And you can see that there's a disproportionately large number of cats in zip code number three compared to the rest of Farrellville. So that is the area where we want the most spay neuter. We want to focus our spay neuter. So you can see that we use the RTF cats as red flags um, and we uh, go into those colonies and try to get high sterilization rates. But we're also working in colonies where there were no return to field cats because they're in the code number three. And this is going to get us because it, when all the colonies in code number three are fixed, you have um, almost el virtually eliminated the vacuum effect. There are no cats to migrate other than uh, lost and abandoned cats and the occasional lure of kittens. And if you're on top of it, you intervene pretty quickly. But you don't have a population of unaltered um, community cats who might be migrating between colonies and filling in vacuums. So as that colony in the middle of zip code number three is, is going down in size, ideally so are all the other colonies in zip code number three, and you've eliminated the vacuum effect. And we have seen this play out in the real world. Uh, Newburyport, Massachusetts, was the first community-wide TNR program in the country. And um, that was back in the 1990s. And they had about 300 cats living along the riverfront, which was a high tourist area. And over the course of time, they either adopted out or spayed and neutered every single cat. And um, the population just kept going down over time until eventually there was literally one 18-year-old cat left who had 34 feeders signed up to take care of him. When he passed away, there were no more cats. And the reason that new cats didn't come in as the older cats died was because there were no new cats. Um, they had eliminated uh, you know, all the sources of reproduction. And another real life example of how return to field can be combined with targeted TNR to have a really effective community cat program is, um, I mentioned earlier, the city of Albuquerque. So here's the progression that took place in that community. On their own, in 2011, the Albuquerque Animal Welfare Department, which is the municipal shelter and municipal animal control agency, they, they launched their own return to field program in 2011. And that's all they did for that year. Only return to field. There was no follow-up TNR at all. In 2012, colony-level targeting through a grant of Best Friends and PetSmart Charities, colony-level targeting was added to the return to field program. So they started to use the red flag approach. And every time a return to field cat was brought back, trappers would enter the neighborhood, locate the additional cats and catch them and get them fixed too. That launched in April 2012. Now, simultaneously in another part of Albuquerque, there were um, a couple of private organizations. There's a private shelter animal in New Mexico, and they had a, a rescue partner, New Mexico Animal Friends, and they targeted seven zip codes that were high intake to their shelter, not so much to the city shelter. That launched in July 2010 and grew more vigorous over the next, um, I think it went on for about five or six years where they were targeting. So you have all aspects of what we've been talking about today going on in the city of Albuquerque. So 2010, you can see intake uh, to the municipal shelter was uh, just below 10,000. In 2011, return to field was introduced. And these numbers are just so interesting. So you can see that 
the return to field program immediately started to drop in Asia from about 5,000 to about 3,700, roughly correlating to the number of cats that were returned to field with the green bar. However, you don't see intake, and intake actually goes slightly up, not down. So you see the return to field program when it's the only thing going on, having a pretty strong impact on euthanasia, but nothing on intake. 2012, we introduced colony-level targeting as part of the RTF strategy. Well, we, uh, we continue to see dramatic reductions in euthanasia, but now we start to see intake going down from uh, close to 10,000 to just over 8,000. And then in the ensuing years, with all the, the, both the colony-level targeting and the community-level targeting likely starting to kick in, we see a steady decline intake year after year after year along with the um, bottoming out euthanasia rates. Now, this was not unique to Albuquerque because this same kind of project, which was an experiment at the time, this, this return to field and targeted TNR had never really been combined in this way before. It was also carried out in six cities, five other cities in addition to um, Albuquerque. And for the most part, you see very similar results. And you can see that uh, overall, this is this is over three years. I followed several years, but th this was the first three years of the program. The numbers you're seeing here, you could see feline intake going down. Other than the city of San Antonio, San Antonio, which had a kind of unique situation where their intake was artificially low when the program started of a number of policies, and when all of a sudden they were perceived as cat friendly, people started bringing lots of cats and kittens to, especially kittens, to them. So that first year of the program actually saw intake jump, but thereafter it went down pretty steadily. Um, you see kitten intake dropping and you can see the, the euthanasia numbers on average were down 83% for across six different facilities, but also average lower intake of uh, 32%. When you break it down to kittens, 40% fewer. So this is just over the course of three years in a variety of different types of, and different locations in the South, in the West, in the Northeast. You can read about this chart is uh, taken from the article you see on the bottom there by Dan Spearer and Peter Wolf, and that's available online if you want to dig deeper into the numbers. But this has now become kind of the gold standard community cat program because it has such a powerful impact. We interrupt this podcast for a quick trivia question. Where's the single place with answers to all of your animal welfare questions? Yes, even the one that kept you awake until two in the morning. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? It's Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum is the only dedicated forum for our industry where you can find answers from colleagues fast and free. Stop doom scrolling and join today. Visit forum.maddiesfund.org slash cats. Could your animal welfare organization use a tune-up? Humane Network can help. You can get a free 30-minute consultation to talk through your challenges and get ideas on how your organization can be more successful with less stress. From board development and fundraising to strategic planning and operations, Humane Network has got you covered. Whether you are a large or small, nonprofit or government, it's a live and thriving program led by a certified animal behavior consultant features specially designed training for shelter and clinic staff on enrichment, stress reduction, safe animal handling, and behavior modification. With Humane Network, you receive individualized advice and support customized to meet your organization's unique needs. And Humane Network can lighten your load by taking on fundraising, communications, and other tasks you struggle with. Contact Humane Network today for a free 30-minute consultation. Visit humanenetwork.org. 
That's humanenetwork.org. Team Dubert is at it again, and now they have an amazing companion case management module that once again revolutionizes how you rescue animals. Dubert partnered with Dallas Pets Alive and the Spay-Neuter Network to build a powerful solution that allows you to manage cases of any kind. Whether owner surrender calls or emails, community cat tracking and reporting, Dubert is the only system that integrates two-way text messaging, automatic follow-ups, and even a rehoming solution that every organization can use. No more trying to manage 10 different technologies when everything is all in one place and tightly integrated. From fostering to transport, fundraising to e-commerce, supply and demand to case management, Dubert has everything you need to streamline your operations so you can focus on saving more animals. Check out the new companion case management module at www.dubert.com CCM and get signed up today. So just a couple of points I want to highlight about the mechanics of identifying. If you want to do community-level targeting, how do you identify where the high-need areas are? So here's a few ways you can do that. You can take your intake if you are tracking it by whatever, you know, hopefully by street address, but even if it's only zip code, whatever it might be, you can map it and see where most of the cats are coming from, and that give you a very good clue as to where to put your TNR resources. You could be RTFing cats throughout New York City, that's what it's a map of, but then focusing your TNR resources within specific areas. So you can identify these um, areas by intake. You can also map uh, complaint calls. If you're a rescue group or a private shelter, you can track requests for assistance. Whatever's coming in, you want to get an address associated with that. There's also what I call tribal knowledge, which is just groups and humane law enforcement officers and directors of agencies who have been in the community for some time. They just know through experience where the hot spots are. And if their knowledge correlates to some kind of objective data, you've got a pretty good idea of where you need to go. Another clue has to do with the socioeconomic situation in, in particular areas. And this is a study that was done by Dr. Gary Petronic, 2010. And his map, what he created is the one on the right. And that's, a, that's maps intake by neighborhood in Boston, in the city of Boston. And the orange in, is the highest cat intake areas. You can see there's that band in the middle, Roxbury and the other sections of Boston where the most cats are coming from. So I took that and I looked at a map of income levels in Boston around the same time that Gary's research was done. And that's on the left. And the lower income areas are the darker red, the red and the darker orange. And you can see how that band of cat intake corresponds almost exactly to the lower income areas of Boston. So what a lot of people are experienced on the ground already know through just their own personal experience, poorer areas are associated, are correlated to higher free roaming cat populations. So that's a really good hint about where you need to go if you're looking to have the impact in terms of targeting TNR is look to those poorer areas, those lower income areas, the ones without and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, spay neuter is not high on the list of priorities when you're just struggling to get enough to feed your kids every day or to get to work or whatever it might be. There also tends to be veterinary deserts where there isn't easy access to veterinary services. So uh, spay neuter of pet cats in lower income areas, uh, households is much lower 
than in higher income, you know, for obvious reasons. So between the data you can generate on intake, complaint calls, tribal knowledge, and your understanding of the socioeconomic makeup of your community allows you to really zero in on those areas that are of high need. So got another book for you. Um, this is Community TNR Tactics and Tools, which is published by PetSmart Charities. This goes into uh, the mechanics of targeting in a lot more. I've just touched on a couple of the highlights, but this goes into the kind of how to do outreach, what kind of personnel resources you, how, where to hold the cats, you know, things like the, all the kind of the nuts and bolts of targeting, as well as some discussion about return to field and what I call grassroots mobilization, which is just getting the general public to contribute a lot of resources and do a lot of the hands-on work. So this is still, I wrote this in 2014, but you can still buy a copy of it on Amazon. Uh, download the PDF file and click on this link, or just go to Amazon and put my last name, K-O-R-T-I-S, and CATS, or TNR, I'm sorry, put Cordis TNR, it'll come up. If you prefer a PDF file, then shoot me an email and I'll see what I can do. It's Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at neighborhoodcats.org. So it's great. We have lots of time for questions. I just want to highlight a couple of other events that are coming up before we get there. As Stacy mentioned, we offer TNR certification workshops uh, every month, uh, Neighborhood Cats in partnership with the Community Cats podcast. It's uh, $10 and it's basically an A to Z on the colony level trapping, you know, and how to get high percentages of the cats in a particular area fixed. So check that out or uh, present that to your community if you want people to be trained, which is, in my experience, always a very good idea before you allocate surgical slots to them. We have a lot of questions. And one of the times when we were sort of talking about doing this return to field presentation, we talked a little bit about advocacy also as another component. And I know you have even a a handout or a brochure on like how to talk to public officials about TNR and community cats. And there's lots of questions about cats and birds out there. And I think there was um, one question sort of covered it a bit. So this person's talking about, you know, a local society, bird society, that's very vocal about colony cats, eating birds, spreading toxoplasmosis and other disease. You know, how can we advocate with our public officials as well as with our bird conservancy groups to, to share. I mean, where Newburyport is, that's like piping plover central. So we're like in birders heaven. And luckily, we seem to have kept the peace with everybody there. But other parts of the country, it's not that way. So when you're dealing with conservationists or people who are concerned about wildlife, the most important thing to focus on is that we as an animal welfare field and other people as part of the conservation, we want the exact same thing. Now, we have different reasons, but we want fewer cats roaming around. I mean, I didn't get into TNR because I enjoyed feeding a colony of cats twice a day every day or because I enjoyed spending my time and my money. Um, I mean, some of us do enjoy the trapping part of it, but, you know, it, it wasn't we we would prefer to have a world in which cats were well cared for, that they were provided for, they were not living on their own on the streets. You know, that is not what most people consider to be a natural. So we want there to be fewer of them. I've, I've said a couple of times in the presentation that one of the overarching goals of a community TNR program is to have fewer free roaming cats. Well, that's what the wildlife people want too. We may be more motivated by um, the welfare of the animals, and they may be mo more motivated by having less predation. 
bottom line is we want fewer cats. So the discussion, if you want it to be productive, has to focus on how do we achieve that goal? How do we get to fewer cats? If the discussion stays stuck on like, oh, the cats are killing the birds and the cats are spreading toxoplasmosis and the cats are the worst things since Satan visited, you know, in 1722 and, you know, the cats are responsible for killing the seals and the cats are responsible for this and the cat. Well, that doesn't get you to fewer cats. That's just playing the blame game, right? If you can get past that and say, look, whatever, let's not argue about how many birds are being, let's not argue about whether you're exaggerating the spread of toxoplasmosis, let's talk about how we get to fewer cats. And when you get to there, there aren't a whole lot of options. You know, um, there's no, I like to say, the first thing I say to a group, to an audience that's, you know, mostly interested in wildlife is, hey, I haven't got a magic wand in my bag here. You know, I can't just wave it and make all the cats go away. So let's look at what's been tried in the past and let's look at what's worked and let's do that. And when you do that, you get to like, you can't just kill them all. You can't just pick them all up one day and make them disappear. It doesn't work for all the reasons we discussed today. On the other hand, we have seen situations where trap neuter return was done in an intensive, targeted way, where the community through return to field programs and, and other policies were educated to pursue to spay neuter as a way of population control. And we've seen these dramatic improvements. And that's what the discussion needs to be on. Now, you may not sway all the bird people, but it's the policymakers that you're trying to sway. And in the end, they care more about having fewer cats than they care about how many birds are. I mean, they want fewer birds killed, but they don't really care whether it's a thousand or 10,000. They just want fewer cats. And because if you have fewer cats, you're going to have fewer deaths. So that's my big lesson when I teach advocacy is don't get stuck in arguing about all the potential ills that cats have. Like, you know, you, you'll get a long, like if you read a typical conservation article about free roaming cats, the first 19 out of the 20 paragraphs are going to be about how horrible the cats are and all the disease they spread and all the species they've wiped out, the threat that they are to biodiversity and all that. And then you'll get to paragraph number 20, which uh, will have a throwaway line about what you're supposed to do about it, you know, or it might just say, and, and so they shouldn't be there. But when you really press them, like, well, what do you mean? You know, then you start getting really silly answers like, well, they should be fenced in in empty suburban lots. Or if we educate people enough, they'll all, despite all the public surveys, they'll want to kill them. They'll want to get rid of them. So there's still, the conservation field is still a little bit in la-la land when it comes to how do you actually reduce cat populations. Policymakers are not, they want results. So stick to the facts, stick to talking about solutions, just concede that there are problems, avoid debating about the extent of So would you advocate, I don't know, approaching, working with, creating a good solid relationship more with your board of health folks, your animal control, like spend more of your time and energy on that battle than maybe some of the more public other stuff? Yes. Yes, the birds versus cats battle is a very uh, media attractive one. They love to play that up. They love the cats and the birds fight. You know, it's really just a piece of propaganda that came out from the Smithsonian Institution, like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago. And it was like the cats are killing, you know, X billions of birds a year in North America. It's an incredibly flawed study. It wasn't meant to be a scientific study. It was meant to be a piece of propaganda that got a lot of media attention. And it worked. It did. And people were coming to me and saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to correspond to, you know, respond to this? And, and my uh, reaction was, 
we're not going to respond to this. We're going to carry on with our work and we're going and, and in and in a month or two, no one's gonna be talking about this anymore. And there's still gonna be a lot of cats out there and there's still gonna be a problem to solve because all this distraction about the cats and the birds doesn't help anyone, doesn't help the cats, doesn't help. So, and we uh, encountered the same thing here in Hawaii, you know, when they get to a point where there's, if they're trying to pass legislation that would limit the practice of trap, neuter, return, or limit the ability to spay, neuter cats, then we're going to fight them tooth and nail. But if they're just spouting propaganda and stuff, we're just going ahead. We're just working. We're just fixing cats and you can not like it if you don't want to. The door is always open to work together. One of the things that we do is we try to be responsible. Um, now, we've tried to have talks, and sometimes they've been successful with conservationists about, all right, you know, like we don't want to put cats in a bird sanctuary. I don't think that's a good idea, especially if they're endangered. So we don't, you know, we'll relocate them. At times when there were no relocation resources available, I've been open to euthanasia. We're talking less than a handful you know, of cats, but when there was absolutely nowhere for them to go except back in the middle of a sanctuary where there were endangered bird, ground nesting birds, then I couldn't agree to that. I couldn't do that to the birds. So we, on our own, without cooperation with the wildlife people, um, try to be sensitive to these areas that are, you know, set aside for wildlife, set aside for species that could be harmed by cats. And um, like I say, it's, I could count on one or two times where we just didn't have any other alternatives. Most of the time, there are non-lethal ways of working things out. So be responsible, be respectful of wildlife. But if the wildlife people won't work with you, just just plow ahead. Just go about it and continue in a responsible way. Keep the door open for discussions because, you know, eventually things change. And more reasonable people hopefully will step in. One person was asking questions about how have you tracked complaints or is there like a standard format for tracking complaints? If you've asked your animal control officer, is that something that they do on a regular basis that they have to track their complaint calls? And are we able to ask for that? Well, you're certainly able to ask for that information. So different agencies will have different data collection policies, but your better agencies, yeah, they track everything. You know, they track what kind of complaint, they track when it came in, they track where it came from, they break it into spreadsheets that can be sorted so you can, you know, identify zip codes. That kind of data is available. Always better to take a cooperative approach because you want to you know, work with agencies. If they are funded by the government, you may be able to submit a Freedom of Information Act request uh, to get that kind of information, but try to go the cooperative because you're going to need to work together in future. Look, I always say that you know if the data collection is not where it needed to be and you don't have street addresses and you don't have any idea where calls are coming from or cats are coming from, then start. And you can do that as a rescue group. You can be a small rescue group. And when people call up and they want help with a cat, you can ask them, where are you? Put it down on a spreadsheet. And after a year, you'll have enough data to be able to identify what parts of your city are the most. If your local spay-neuter clinic um, or rescue group doesn't really have a specific program or anything for the TNR certificate that we do on a monthly basis, why would somebody want to get certified through our program? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of advantages to it. If you're running, if, if you're a spay-neuter clinic, if you're allocating spay-neuter surgeries, having people train means that they're going to be more efficient. They're going to fill the slots. They're going to know how much time to take. Certification was introduced in New York City because the ASPCA was offering free spay-neuter on their mobile clinics, and they would give out 25 spots, and somebody would show up with 10 cats, and 15 slots would be wasted. So they started to require people to be certified and trained 
And then they found that percentage went way up. So you've got more efficient trappers. If you're working on your own, you're not a clinic. Um, the advantages are, well, first of all, just you'll know better. <laughs> you'll be a better trapper. You'll be more efficient. Use your resources more wisely. But also it gives you credibility. So part of being a, an effective TNR worker is knowing why TNR is a good thing, is understanding the long-term process and being able to explain it to other people. And if you can show that you've been trained, then you've got more credibility. It'd be like the same with anything. You know, if I've taken accounting classes and I'm starting to tell you what this financial statement says, I have more credibility because I'm trained. I've, I've looked at these things as opposed to somebody who just picked it up for the first time and has no there's no objective way of judging. So for your own knowledge and for to boost your own credibility, you mentioned that group in Long Island where they uh, everybody needs to be certified when the, because they want to know that they're working with people who are trained, who are speaking the same language. So that 10 bucks goes an awful long way. <laughs> Going sort of on that same theme, you are out there and you're, you're trapping on your own and you would like to have some support, get to know other trappers in your area that are doing TNR, that support. You know, how can they find each other? Good question. I mean, um, I've got, maybe you want to throw that slide up about um, the different uh, social media networks that are available uh, through Neighborhood Cats and through the Community Cats podcast. You can join one of those Facebook groups and immediately link in. I'm finding that in more and more, like on uh, Maui, there's a Facebook group that's now called the Cat Network of Maui, I, I, something like the Good Cat Network. I've, anyway, it's it started off like maybe a couple of years ago, and now it's got close to 2,000. And they're problem solving all the time. You know, somebody's a microchip scanner, somebody found a cat, whatever problem it is. In New York City, we have um, an online uh, discussion group where, again, there's hundreds of people on it, and they work with each other. They communicate. They um, Somebody needs a slot for a pregnant cat. Somebody needs somebody to feed their colony for a couple of days and to connect. So if you don't have that in your, you can start it you know, start a Facebook group and, you know, make it specifically for any cats in your area. Um, look to the national groups. I'm sure Alley Cat Allies probably has a pretty vigorous Facebook or some type of online discussion group. There's the Feral Friends Network, a bit of basic research, and you'll find these uh, online communities. And there's also a Community Cats United, and they have regional oh, right. sections. They have a, a lot of different segmented uh, Facebook groups, and I travel around in, in that network. And we have an online cat conference group. If, if you want to get connected, you can always feel free to email me at stacy at communitycatspodcast.com, and I'll do everything to try and get you connected through to somebody in your area. There's a uh, Pittsburgh feral cat group that's coming through here. And Donna is here from Long Island, which started this spay neuter appointment swap group. Thankful thankful for the shout out. So it's good. And I, I, I encourage people to get connected in some way because the hands-on work can be something that's very, you're doing very much alone. You know, you're trapping, you're alone with the cats, you're taking care of them. And it can start to feel very isolating, especially if you're in a community where these programs are new and there may not be a lot of understanding and there may be some hostility. Uh, it's very important to understand that you're far from alone, that there are literally millions of people in this country being the same. And uh, get yourself connected, take advantage of the internet. Yep, for sure. For sure. And um, also, I'll just mention if you want to, you can even check out like some of the 
low-cost spay-neuter clinics and their social media. So you can go to the you know United Spay Alliance's website and search on your state. We're trying to get the spay-neuter clinic listings up there and search for the clinics near you and join their social media. And I would think that they would also have folks that you can connect in with. So a variety of different angles, but sometimes it does take a little bit of work. For those of you who don't like Facebook groups. I respect your social media desires and all of that. It's, it is it is really uh, challenging for sure. Um, someone was trying to convince me the other day to have a clubhouse, do clubhouse for all of us and all that kind of stuff. So there are some other avenues that probably will be developing. So we may be talking about other things maybe in the years to come. Let me throw out one other thing, which was we're talking about a post-pandemic world you know, or a highly vaccinated world. But when we started Neighborhood Cats in New York City, it was just a few volunteers and very little, very few resources. But what we were doing was very much new to most of our community. And we just let it be known through the grapevine that on the first, I think, Tuesday evening of every month, we would be at Starbucks and anybody could come and and ask us questions and have a discussion about community cats. And that went on for the first couple of years. And every the first Tuesday of every month, we would have people come from all over the city and they would have advanced questions or they would have beginning questions. And that discussion group became the foundation of what is now thousands and thousands of people throughout New York City who are doing this. So just something as simple as that can go a long way. Yeah. And, and I'm happy to help anybody if they want to do some outreach in their local areas and have ideas and support. Many hands make light work and it also you know, takes a village too. So I'm happy to help anybody with trying to create another you know, another group, another organization, or just a, a neighborhood. Oh my goodness! Look at that it's face. My 19-year-old. Oh, so <laughs> he so. My lap. Very first colony that I took care of. He came running up one day, going meow 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 meow. And I was like, "What are you doing here?" I ended up taking him home. Yes, <laughs> 19 years later. So that happened to me. I was walking back from having ice cream in Newburyport. I was walking back to my apartment. <laughs> And this little voice, meow, meow, big barking voice. And I was a little eight-week-old kitten and ended up being Steffi. And we checked the whole neighborhood. Nobody owned her or anything. And that was back in 1992. She lived to be 20. Deaf as a doornail at the end. You could do whatever you wanted and she wouldn't hear a thing. So, <laughs> but anyway, so everybody, I want to thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Susie, thank you so much for a great presentation. Susie was in the background answering tons of questions. She makes these events so easy. If we missed any questions, um, we will be reviewing them. And I want to thank all of you for attending, for joining us. And thank you all for turning your passion for cats into action and check out the Community Cats podcast. I'm grateful for everything that you do. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Did you attend the online cat conference in January? If you did, we hope you enjoyed the incredible content provided by our expert presenters, and hope your information and encouragement will help you turn your passion for cats into action. Events at the online cat conference would not be possible without the support of our generous sponsors. Our premier sponsor was Maddie's Fund. Leadership sponsors include Best Friends, 
Chica, Dr. Belty's Cat Products, and Care. Staining sponsors included Pets Atmel, Humane Network, the MSPCA, and the Vermont Humane Federation. If your business or organization would like to support content that makes a difference for cats and communities worldwide, visit communitycatspodcast.com slash event sponsorship.